Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Tuesday, the 20th of October. Professor Catherine Bennett comments on the strengthening of the Victorian public health system through the second wave and on important measures to be aware of as Melbourne gradually exits from the lockdown. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. Professor Catherine Bennett, can you please tell us a bit about yourself? Well, I'm an epidemiologist that has a mixed background. I've worked in government um, and in outbreak control. I worked on uh, setting up the public health response for Northern Sydney during the Olympic Games. But also I've worked for 20 years now um, looking at community transmission, particularly of um, MRSA and, you know, with a focus and interest in antibiotics resistance, but also in, in staff more generally. So a mix. So a shoe leather epidemiologist and also a, a, you know, an academic epidemiologist. The second wave of COVID-19 exposed the underbelly of the Victorian public health system with the collapse of the, taste, the test, trace and isolate arms, being just unable to cope with the large numbers. In an article, you had likened the improvement of the Victorian public health system as akin to building the aeroplane while flying and that the system is now very comprehensive and increasingly robust. Can you take us through this journey from troubled beginnings to current strengths for the Victorian public health system? Yeah, look, it's, a, it's a, actually a fascinating story. We, we had a, a, a modest team that could cope with public health responses um, and on a very small scale, but even that team couldn't really be scaled up. So we had to bring in other people to assist in, in just following up the cases and starting to get onto that contact tracing work. But the system was also hampered by other things. They were collecting information in hard copy. You know, information was being faxed across to the department and we had people who had to then type the information in and all those things take time. And, and, you know, you risk accuracy and, and losing time as you go through that process. And when the second wave really took off, the first wave, we probably had a lot more community transmission than we know, but we weren't testing people in the community. So they didn't have those cases to follow up unless they were linked to a traveller. But now we were suddenly, you know, getting two, 300, 400 cases a day. And that really stressed the system. Uh -huh. So the, the rebuild then was about you know, building an IT system that allowed direct entry that could then be run in parallel so they, the system still talked to it. Um, but also it allowed them to move to a local public health response, which was really important, particularly in some of those inner city Melbourne areas, but also regional Victoria, where they could build in with community health services. So you could do your testing and contact tracing work 
embedded in the community, but you needed that IT system to support it. So with all of that, I started reducing the time to results. The lab um, system picked up, the reporting um, got better and the, and the follow-up as well. But then, then we started to do more. As the case numbers came down, then it really did start to lift to another level. And so starting to do more upstream work. So when you get your case, don't focus just on downstream, particularly with super spreaders. You need to look upstream to try and understand the transmission and make sure there isn't a larger cluster that you've, you've missed. And most importantly now, it's contacts of contacts, this extra ring of containment that would have prevented the Chadston outbreak in you know, spreading to Kilmore and Shepparton because the gentleman who got in the truck would have been asked to go into isolation one day earlier. And that's all it takes. This is such a quick you know, <laughs> link between exposure and becoming infectious that you really want to get people into isolation before they know they're infected and certainly before they're infectious. And that 48 hours before you have symptoms is, is absolutely, you know, critical. That's a nice segue into the next question. As you had also written that we, as, that we should move away from the 14-day rolling average of COVID-19 cases and focus on the under-investigation cases instead. Can you tell us more about the differences and why the cases under investigation is a useful alternative number to focus on? So we have moved away from, from the, these averages now altogether, really, because our numbers are so low. But the idea at that time was that most of the ones where the report comes through saying they're linked are ones where these are people already in isolation who've been tested and we've been waiting for their results. Under investigation will include those very small number, under 10%, that end up being mystery cases, but also a number that are just a bit harder to link to outbreaks. Um, so it's really just being cautious. I mean, they, you'd say, well, just focus on the mystery cases, but this other group might have a bit of work to do or they might be linked to an outbreak but have been a casual contact, so maybe they weren't in isolation when they might have been infectious. So they're the ones that, as a group, um, from the numbers we get, that, um, that I thought was a better focus. And, in fact, the good news is they got down to five... Um, an average of five a day for your 14-day rolling average, you know, weeks and weeks ago. So that was a good sign that we did have this under control. And to me, that was more useful because if you had an outbreak that then spread to quite a few people, but it was contained, it would bump up your total number. But in fact, this was a more steady read on mm. what was happening in the, um, in, you know, terms of the broader terms of control of these isolated and and harder to connect cases. Professor Bennett, considering you've just been through a pretty rough time in Melbourne and you're coming out of it, your numbers are looking actually incredibly good compared even to New South Wales. So the question is, can it get even better? And what is the role of the widespread mandatory mask wearing doing to this number? Yeah, look, we've, we've done incredibly well, haven't we? <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a good news story. You would hope that after 100 days of lockdown that you would be, you know, seeing these um, very low numbers now. It was interesting because our stage three restrictions, like the ones we had in the first wave, worked enough to turn the second wave around to flatten the curve, but it didn't pull it down like it did in the first wave. And in fact, it was the addition of masks here in Victoria that really made the difference. That pulled this reproduction number down below one. 
and and that was presumably consolidated with stage four then with masks. But at the same time, the real difference was adding masks in. And in fact, we see that in regional Victoria too, the masks were added at different times, but you can see immediately afterwards this impact on transmission rate. So it's actually something that if done well, um, and I think we've proved you can do it well at a whole population level, it's, it's really important to suppress that extra bit of transmission. And once the numbers are really low, to move you into that safe prevention space. Now, just speaking from a New South Welshman perspective, we really haven't got the movement restriction that Victoria had. We still got a lot of free movement here. And mask wearing just seems to be against the grain of the large majority of population. So do you express any concern about the fact that in New South Wales, people are just moving about willy-nilly and nobody's wearing masks, or very few people are wearing masks? Yeah, look, I, I, I would be encouraging them to try and get masks on public transport, for example. Um, I guess it's an advantage in Victoria that if we no longer have to wear them all the time, people should have a good enough supply of masks that, um, you know, they'll be hopefully quite ready to, to wear them on public transport. So I think there are places where it could be mandated for some time in Victoria. And I think that just makes it easier in many ways. It's an expectation. And other people wearing masks getting on public transport you know, you don't want them being fearful because someone's got on and isn't yeah. wearing a mask. So I think it's easier and it's a, it's a safe strategy to have masks. Yeah. Can you comment on the deviation of the exit from lockdown recently announced by Premier Andrews, despite being under pressure? The, the roadmap was very conservative anyway. And, you know, it became very clear in the last month or so that even as the numbers came down, there was a, a palpable sense of fear in the community no one wanted to go through another wave okay. and no one wanted to go through lockdown again. So there's almost a reluctance to give up on lockdown for fear that it'll, it'll bounce back. Okay. But in fact, that's more about assuring people that you have the public health response in place, the early warning systems and so on that makes a difference. And, and coming back to that New South Wales, Victoria example, the government does surveys looking at you know, people's behaviour, compliance with various restrictions at different times and those data from the first wave showed that Victoria was actually one of the most compliant states. You know, people had the fewest contacts, the least yeah. mobility. By the time we got to June, we'd already had a safe exit from the first wave. By June, we still had less contacts per person. So in Victoria, people, I think it was something like five close contacts when you interviewed them. In, in Sydney, it was, it was eight. Hmm. So you can just imagine that then ramps up, you know, the need to do contact tracing by another 50% um, every time you find a new case. So you're right. It, it makes a difference if people are freely moving. And Victoria will come out of this slowly. But it's important that Victorians know that, you know, it's also safe so that there's not trauma in coming out of this. So it's getting the messaging right so hmm. that people feel safe, but also making things move safely but swiftly so that, you know, we're not suffering more of the side effects of this, which is, you know, another concern. You say any chance that there might be an elimination objective in Victoria? Yeah, look, we, we, we actually suppressed community transmission in the first wave. There is none of the virus that circulated in the first wave reported in Melbourne now. So, in fact, the first wave ended 
just as this second wave was starting to take off. Uh-huh. We had one or two days with zero cases, but in fact, the, the start of wave two was embedded in the tail of wave one. So I think that's really reassuring, you know, that stage three was enough even before masks and that we were able to contain it. So as long as it doesn't get away from you and as long as, you know, you can be straight on to those cases and and following up not just the contacts but their contacts, you're in a much better position to stop wider spread and that's how you prevent another wave happening. So, yeah, I think we're, we're actually in a good place now for that and I think as you keep doing that, even as we open up progressively, just as after the first wave, we were much more open in the first wave with numbers 12, you know, over 10 average. We're now much lower than that. So I'm, I'm expecting that, that that's certainly a possibility that we might get to, to zero cases. But then as you open up borders, we have to be prepared for more cases mm. anyway. But what an exciting place for you to be right now. Yeah, it's been, it's been fascinating. I think, you know, you train for things all your life and we knew we were overdue for a flu pandemic while I was a student studying at university. And so you're kind of always on a watch and then we realised it might not be flu, it could be corona with SARS and then MERS. But this, you know, it's extraordinary. And to have that one in 100 year event as an epidemiologist, yeah. it's, um, you know, it's, it's horrifying and and fascinating, you know, at at the same time. And in fact, the first wave was actually in many ways more more scary for an epidemiologist because we couldn't test everyone. We didn't have that testing capacity. And I knew we had community cases. We could see some people, you know, getting into the hospital system who might be tested. And for every one of those who has had a serious community pneumonia that couldn't be diagnosed against something else and was tested for COVID, you know, there were probably 95 people out in the community that were active cases. So we were really flying blind in that first wave, whereas at least as our testing rates picked up and people's, you know, buy into the testing has been fantastic, we now, you know, have a much, much more complete picture. Just moving on to something a little different. I note that New South Wales Health reported finding SARS-CoV-2 fragments in wastewater Now, this is in early October and named several suburbs as suburbs to watch. And some days later, sure enough, three of those suburbs named had cases and certainly one in Oran Park became a large cluster with 19. I wonder if this validates the use of wastewater testing uh, in its role in public health. Absolutely. We had a couple of false alarms possibly here in Victoria with Anglesey and Apollo Bay, where they weren't able to find anyone positive. But it gives you a signal that you should go in and actively encourage people to test in those areas. And so, you know, having those warnings, reporting those results, getting people to come in and test allows you to find cases in an area where there is the prospect um, based on the sewage water testing that you do have active cases. So that's that's exactly how you want it to work. Mm. We might get a few false positives. We might get dead virus being shed from yeah. recovered cases. So it'll be a while before it's perhaps as effective in central Melbourne, for example, where we have a lot of people feeding into the same catchment area. Mm. But in, in these settings where we have very low case numbers, it's, that's exactly how you want to see it work. Now, I note that the Oxford University Department of Physics has developed an extremely rapid diagnostic test for COVID-19. It's able to differentiate with high accuracy SARS-CoV-2 
from negative samples and other viruses. Now, if in fact such a device, and it's intended to be an integrated device, is developed, and you can do point, uh, you know, point testing, so at large venues and airports, can you just imagine for us how that could work, where it would be used, and how could that change our current strategy? It is a really important development, just cutting down that time to a result. So we do have a working kit that the government is happy, is, um, is as good as it's going to get and good enough to use um, against our PCR gold standard testing. That will come with perhaps less sensitivity, if not also specificity. So there is a risk that you might miss cases, but there's possibly also a risk you're going to get false positives. So you'd have to back it up with other tests. Mm. But as you say, point of entry tests, whether it's screening at workplaces, so running the, the test, and if people are clear, you might take nasal swabs on some of them. It's another good way to validate the methods in those settings, but allows you to get the rapid response. So you're not only saying, oh, goodness, you know, someone was positive yesterday when they went into the workplace. You can actually say, look, can you wait? We'll get the test done. We'll give you a call. We'll have the result in, in three hours um, and do a PCR as well. So I think there's going to be a way it's built in, particularly to screening and also to our, you know, movement of people where you've got a lot of people and they want to actually just test people in the population more widely if they want to actually get mm. a, a picture of what's going on as well. But I do think workplace surveillance gives us that. We have people from all corners going in and working in our hospitals and aged care. And if we've got screening in those workplaces, it does tell us about the wider community, those people, their households and all their connections. The technology behind this test is actually really interesting because it does work from a swab and apparently what they do is they rapidly label the virus particles with short fluorescent DNA strands that are then microscopically and automatically screened and apparently the, um, the rates are really quite high. So, you know, this might get rid of a little bit of your false positives and false negatives and make it a little more reliable. Yeah, they're, they're improving them all the time. And Fantastic. there's been a lot of investment put into this. And, you know, we don't want to test half a million people in Melbourne a day and have a 1% false positive rate. Mm. It would be chaos. But it's it's been brilliant, the amount of investment that's been put into these rapid tests and, and ensuring that, you know, we get to a standard of testing that could be managed on scale with mm. that immediate result with few false positives, um, but also that it's got a good sensitivity and you're not going to miss too many potential cases as well. So as both those things improve, then, you know, that will make a massive difference to the way we monitor what's happening in the community. We protect those most vulnerable um, workplaces and populations, but also how we keep a read on what's happening in the wider community. Do you think that might allow us to open up our international borders? So we're way off that now, unfortunately, looking what's happening in the Northern Hemisphere as, as winter comes in. Mm. Um, I, I think we're really, at this stage, looking for a vaccine before we have large-scale movement. We just don't have the capacity to quarantine. Technology will help with quarantining. You know, they've trialled the ankle bracelets. There's a variety of things you can do, but we just can't manage mm. that many people when you have to take the care that we have to take to protect the wider community. So I think, you know, 
it's a long way to go in, in Europe and North America and Africa before we would even contemplate that. And I think, you know, hopefully the vaccine will bring that, bring that assurance. Now, just coming out of your lockdown, Catherine, do you have any um, final messages to our listeners? I think the main one is, as, as we start to pull back on restrictions, that we do need to focus on prevention going ahead. So all those things like if you have symptoms, not only get tested, but do it early, do it straight mm. away, put your mind to rest. The chance of it being COVID are tiny and you'll get a lab result back sometimes, you know, three or four hours. So you can put it out of mind and you're, and you're fine. The other thing is if you have any symptoms, do that, don't go to work. Mm. And as we start to open up more workplaces, then that's going to be something that everyone has to be mindful of. And that's not just about COVID. That actually means workplaces won't be somewhere where you go and get sick and take it home to your family. You know, we actually can create a safer environment just by people working from home if they can or taking sick leave if they need to, but being careful around mm. all those things, particularly if you've got symptoms. So keeping all those personal precautions up, masks in Victoria are, are such a big part of that, as we've talked mm. about. But um, particularly those actions, if you've got symptoms, they're probably the two key things going ahead. One last question. Are you concerned about the fact that recent studies says that the virus can stay alive for long periods on surfaces? That particular study by the CSIRO was, was useful because it set up almost perfect conditions to see how long you could, in fact, find virus, live virus, after a surface was inoculated. But it was in the complete absence of UV light. Mm. And it was 50% humidity. And so it's, it didn't describe a set of um, circumstances that are very common. And that's very good news. So we, we have to be mindful that these things can linger. But we also know that ethanol can get rid of it really quickly. Mm. So it's easily denatured. It might linger if you have the wrong circumstances. But the chances of that remain very small, which is, which is good. And as summer comes on, everything's got an outdoor focus, um, particularly here in Victoria then all of those things, the UV in particular, will help people avoid, you know, potential exposure. Thank you for giving us your precious time, Catherine. It's been really interesting talking to you. A pleasure. Thank you, David. You have a great day. You too. Cheers. Bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.